Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Melbourne-based poet and novelist Lisa Gorton. Lisa's first poetry collection, press release, was shortlisted for the Melbourne Prize Best Writing Award and the Mary Gilmore Award and won the Victorian Premier's Prize for Poetry. Lisa completed a doctorate at Oxford University on John Donne's Poetry and Prose, winning the John Donne Society Award for Best Publication in Donne Studies. She received the inaugural Vincent Buckley Poetry Prize, and her novel for children, Cloudland, was one of the Age Book of the Year in 2009. And Lisa has joined us today to read from and talk about her new poetry collection, Hotel Hyperion. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Hello. Now, before we begin chatting, uh, I'd love you to open our session by reading from the very first poem in the book, um, from the Dreams and Artifacts section, after the Titanic Artifact Exhibition. Great. Maybe Um, you could read all four. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. Um, Should I introduce it at all? If you'd Um, like, sure. This was a poem that I wrote after going to the Titanic Artifact Exhibition, and I went a few times, and I... I found it so strange, partly and beautiful, the idea of a machine which went down to the bottom of the sea and drew up perfectly ordinary things which became invested with with a particular significance. And it seemed to me that machine worked a bit like memory, which was dredging things up. And and I, I should say, too, that the poem makes reference to the staircase that um, that you can see on film actually at the bottom of the sea, which is getting grown over with these extraordinary um, creatures, actually, which look like um, icicles, grey, decaying uh, icicles. It's called um, Dreams and Artifacts after the Titanic Artifact Exhibition. Patiently, ticket by ticket, a soft-stepped crowd advances into the mimic ship's hull, half-sailed out of the foyer wall, as if advancing into somebody else's dream. The interior, windowless, where perspex cases bear, each to its single light, small relics. A tortoiseshell comb. An ivory hand mirror. A necklace pricked with pin's head costume pearls. They might be mine. At least things loosed from a dream I had off and on for years. They have suffered nothing. These things raised from a place less like place than like memory itself. Where the sea has worked back upon itself in soundless storm, a staircase climbs. Its scroll of iron foliage grows in subtler garlands now. It is the sea's small machinery of hunger feeding on iron makes these crookedly intricate festoons, as if it were the future of remorse overtaking. Piece by piece, the staircase returns to the conditions of dream. In the next room, they have custom-built a staircase, a replica reinvented from a photograph that leads nowhere, or it leads to the house of images, where nothing is lost. A clock without a mechanism adorns its first-floor landing, hands stopped at that minute history pours through. We forgive things only because we own them. This is a staircase not for climbing, its first step strung with a soft-weave rope. It is raining as I leave, long rain breaking itself onto the footpath, breaking easily into the surface of itself like a dream without emblems, an indrawn shine. 
Overhead clouds build and ruin imaginary cities. Slow-mo historical epics with the sound down, playing to no one. Hmm. So tell me about the poems. Did you actually attend the exhibition with the aim of writing a series of poems around it? I well, not exactly. I not exactly. I I actually had a commission to write something relating to a government press release, um, and it was one of those perplexing commissions. <laughs> and I was very fortunate because I found a press release relating to the Titanic artifact exhibition, and what they were announcing was its extraordinary popularity and. Thousands and thousands of people went, and so I was interested, I suppose, in um, from the beginning in the public presence of museums and their public role, and and what it is that we go to um, go to see and to find there, particularly ones which are recording, I suppose, symbolic losses. Um, so in a way, I went on spec, thinking um, that a poem might grow out of it, but I. But I worked. I, I did one poem for the commi- for the commission, and then I worked on the poem again and reworked it for months. So um, there was initial, the there was an initial provocation to try to um, develop a poem in response to the exhibition. But the poem that I've just read was not that one. It was something else because I felt it was um, it was such a strange event for me. I went several times, and I, and I thought they had. I didn't put in the poem that they had. Um, they had an ice block there, and so that people could touch the ice block and recreate the experience of the cold that people would have felt. And uh, uh, so they had this very dramatic museum exhibition, and I was. And within that, there were these very quiet, um, very quiet pieces brought up from the sea floor. So it was that sort of set of tensions and oddities I suppose I was I was thinking about when I wrote the poem mm. yes I mean I, I, it does set the tone for I guess a lot of the themes that come through the book in many ways uh, this idea this notion of the inter, I guess the interactivity between place and memory you, you know you have the line less like place than like memory itself or returning it, to the yeah. conditions of dreams I was quite um I I tried with this collection to make it work as a collection. I thought I thought that was an interesting experience having my first book come out. Um and maybe this is the case with first books, they're sort of collected over years and so on. But I felt um with this one I wanted it to work like a like, like a sort of house or a or a crystal formation where things build out of other things and I was I was interested in that sort of structure of the book I suppose because it did seem that I was thinking about memory and how memory works like that how you have these rooms of memory which um where where one object can open up into a whole new sort of house of imagination I suppose and how we, how we sort of have these condensed memories that also open out across years so I did um I did deliberately put in all kinds of parallels and echoes and repetitions in the book in the hope that it would start to work as a structure the way memory works, it seems to me, as a structure in our thinking. 
Yes, there's an interesting visual parallel as well with, um, I mean, if we take the poems around the Titanic artifact exhibition, it's almost as if metaphorically you're spraying, you're spraying that exhibition with a, a substance that will make it form those crystals and turn into something completely different, which of course is echoed in the last section of the book. Well, I, that's true because I was also aware um, that in a way I was appropriating things and I suppose I was... At the time I was writing it, um, looking after young children and in a very domestic routine, and so I was interested in repetition and inwardness and interiority. But also, and 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 partly I was interested, I suppose, in um, the value of those things and the presence of those things. But I was also aware that what they can do is close you in yourself, and and so it seemed to me. Um, I was creating a structure that sort of opened outwards for me um, into different kinds of thoughts and dreams and memories, but also feeling, I suppose, slightly claustrophobic and and um, mm. and, and hearkening for some some outside world that always seems, in any event, out of reach. So I suppose there there is that sort of tension in <laughs> in the book and that sense yes. that concern that I, that I'm sort of appropriating things and and what value that has and what danger or um, what pain that has really. Yes, but I suppose the the whole notion. I mean, the Titanic itself, of course, is not it's not a happy event, and and memory itself is is always tinged with you know a sense of not being able to to get back. Yeah. Yes, and it seemed to me this. Um, and one of the things that um, that I did find striking about the Titanic exhibition, for instance, which kind of encapsulates um, what you were talking about, is that they would give you a card and they would. Um, send you through the exhibition as though you were one of the passengers and, and at the end you would find out by matching your card against the wall uh, whether you lived or died. And, and I felt in a way um, that that itself was an appropriation of other people's suffering, as it were, mm. and, and that when we go and look at these relics of other people's death, it seems there's a kind of tension about whether we're coming in contact with the idea of their death or with the idea of our own through a distance and remove. And I suppose behind all of this thinking was a sense for what is art's role in that, you know, what is poetry's role in that when we, you know, I think there's this beautiful line in, in Hamlet where Hamlet says, what's Hecuba, what's Hecuba to him and he to Hecuba that he should weep for her. And I suppose there was that tension in what were we sort of mourning when we went to the Titanic? Was it that loss or was it the sort of very old poetic images of death and the sea and jewels buried in the sea that we were using to come in contact with our own fear of death and, and fascination with it. Mm, yes, absolutely. So tell me how the, the collection as a whole came together as a book. Um, I, it began actually with the sighting of this very odd instrument called a storm glass in the window of a curiosity shop. And um, I just had my second child, and I um, and I don't know why those things seem to be connected, but I saw this um, this storm glass, which is actually an outdated instrument for recording weather, and it's um, a glass dome with liquid in it. And within the liquid, which is a special kind of chemical formulation, these tiny crystals form, and they form and break down in response to weather in a mysterious way. And some people say it's just in, in response to temperature, which may be the case. Um, 
and some people think there's quantum tunneling through the glass. Anyway, um, Fitzroy took one of these instruments on the Beagle, and um, and so it had a history of as with a sense that it would record weather. And I became kind of obsessed with this thing, and I would say the whole collection, in a way, originated with the poem that I wrote about that storm glass, the first one. It's not the first poem in the sequence of the book, but it's the one that sort of originated the book. And I think it's why the book is, um, is why there are crystals throughout the book and repetitions, because the instrument which I bought um, and which I kept in the house became for me a kind of emblem of poetry and, and how it can work, because I was keeping poems in my head while I was doing other things. And I was watching, and I was keeping them in my head for, for a long time. I'm very, very slow writing poems. And so they would be these things that I would have in my head that built up quietly and you know, fell apart and were lost and decayed and built up again. And in parallel with that, I was observing this sort of crystal formation within the glass, which had some relationship to the outside world, um, but which was also sort of enclosed and a bit of a an outdated instrument and curio. And so I suppose the book originated from that. Mm. And, and beautiful in its way, too. I mean, it's a, an attractive artifact, isn't it? It is. It is. And I loved in it um, the combination of that great beauty of the crystals and a sort of kitsch element, you know, I think there's a, mm. which, which I was interested in playing with, I suppose, as a sort of um, angularity. So I did try to sort of find things in the or place things in the book that are that are odd and kitsch and difficult, like cryogenics and um, and science fiction and things that aren't normally um, associated with the lyric mode, I suppose. And I wanted to, uh, I suppose, even technically, I was interested in that sort of that conundrum or that difficulty. Yeah. And it's it's old technology, of course, and then there is future technology as well. So that's also another interesting thing that happens um, with the past and the present and the future kind of um, commingling in a way that is almost science fiction-y but also poetry. Um, but before before we move on to that question, which I'd love yeah. to talk about, um, yeah. can you just read us one of the, the poems in the Storm Glass section, which is section two, um, I think maybe the third, but any sure. of them will be fine. Sure. In a storm glass crystals, with the exactness peculiar to foreboding, make neural flare shapes, ultrasound colored threads cross-stitched with blank, as of sensation excised and here, preserved in light. It is tomorrow's weather haunting a small room, clouds which hurry for no one, which, amassing, betoken that undifferentiated grudge some call ambition, he confide motive without gesture, as if to say there is another world, it is in this one, this sealed glass, structure of feeling in place of thought, where images fold into images, the way a child disappears into the film in which she plays herself. Hmm. You were right, actually. That was the poem that began the book. <laughs> oh, was it good? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes. It also has uh, one of the things that that, that particular poem raises, which again is a, almost a recurring motif, um, although it takes different forms, is this notion of almost a multiverse, um, this notion of folding worlds. Yes, yeah. I, I, um, I was interested in that in terms of memory and also in terms of, um, I suppose, poetry and its 
um, place. It sort of seemed to me as I as I was thinking through some of the ideas about place and memory that in a way poetry exists because we have this experience of reality where images where where things are images and they work like images and places become facts of consciousness and sort of repositories of our memory and um, and art answers that I suppose or, or poetry answers that it. it deals with things in that way, which is more real to us than realism, I think. And so I, I was interested in that enfolding, which seemed to me to be connected to why we read poetry at all. Mm. It's, it's like an alternative science in this way. <laughs> yeah. And also an answer to that fear of death, I think, because, you know, you're preserving. Yes, yeah. So I think we're odd. Um, I mean, I... I think I was also thinking about that. I mean, objects survive your death. And so it's interesting in, with the issue that you raised before, I think, about sort of possession and how we possess things and appropriate them and draw them into our dreams and our own memories. And yet they go on existing for themselves and they survive us often. And so um, and so it's that double charge, I suppose, where it's sort of trying to catch hold of the world, but the world that we try to catch hold of is, is, is partly the one in our own minds, I suppose. Yes, and the children in the book, I mean, of course, as a parent, one's always thinking of one's own children and that whole sense of what motherhood means. But the children in the book, or the child in the book, certainly is a character. And that character has a, you know, it has a real life as well in its its way. It becomes a real character. Well, yes, I feel nervous talking about it because, you know, one's always boring about one's own children, one's feelings about them. Um, I had this interesting Not to other mothers. <laughs> <laughs> but even to my children, they kind of, uh, <laughs> they find the poetry boring, um, which is fine. But I was interested because there is this interest in rooms, and, and one of the things I think about writing is you become conscious of your own obsessions. So that I had realized in a way that a lot of what I did was about rooms, and I hadn't realized until I sort of confronted it directly in this book. But even my doctorate on Gunn was looking at his use of rooms and space and how he plays with space. Mm. And so it was actually through the process of writing the book that I remember that as a child myself one time I I had this um illness where I couldn't walk. And I couldn't I was about 5 or 6 and I couldn't walk for 3 months and it sounds like a terrible thing but actually I really rather enjoyed it. And I was closed in a bedroom and uh and I had a little bell and I could summon people to my room. And I think that maybe if for me that I, I wrote a, um, a series of poems about that actually in the book because it seemed to me there was a, when you were talking about folding, there's a sort of folding out into art of personal um, experience and, um, you know, a connection between personal experience and images that we find in other people's work and writing so that it's um, not as solipsistic as it might sound. But um, so it seemed to me that it originated in a sense perhaps there for me. Mm. And and since you so neatly seg into um, Room and Bell, um, oh. can you read us the six from that series? Yes, I'll find it in the in the book for a moment. The one that begins that room has gone. Yes. Um, that room has gone. The wall knocked out to extend the living room. Now a sofa rests against the wall where my bed was. I settle there when I visit my mother's house. 
Every familiar place has this more intimate architecture, these structures of memory which build our shelter within the shelter of a house. To discover it, I need only step blindfolded through the door. At once the house builds itself around me, not as rooms, and not equally, but as habits belonging to left and right, to close and further off. The true translation of my experience of a house would be the place where I go between, the place of being careful, the place where I hid once behind the chair, the place of skirting boards, the place built about a trapdoor that each night drops me through the floor of my own being. There's a, there's a lot of little stories through this book, and um, and this one has a little story too. I mean, you've you've given us the story, I guess, behind it. But I feel, again, I feel like it's almost like a, a you know a flash fiction type piece, although of course it's poetry. But it's this, you know, there's a lot happening there that you can really imagine. You know, you know, full story sense from start to finish. Well. I'm glad of that. I I um I don't know whether it's connected, but I must say when the book came out, uh, when it arrived from the publisher, I was um, I wept for about a week. I was uh, I had I was devastated, and, I, and it took me ages to work out why. And I realised I'd been working on this book, and I thought, um, and it had become a sort of obsession. It had itself become a house, as it were, and I was always living in it. And all the poems I wrote were sort of like building other rooms within the house. You know, like those rooms. They have underground um, where they, which they dig out with a chainsaw. It felt like that—that that I was in this sort of closed space that was opening out and opening out, but always making the same building. And I thought it'll be wonderful to be free of it. It'll be great, and I'll write very different poems. And and um, who knows what I won't do. And then I came, and I, I felt uh, devastated, and I realised, um, I suppose, what it had been like to write it. So that I do think that the architecture of the house that I try to describe there is also a description of what it's been like to work on the book over mm. over four or five over five years actually um, such a short book for five years but um, but I suppose there's sort of by that stage that was one of the last sequences that I wrote I was sort of trying to deal with that sense of what all that time living in the imagination comes to mean Mm. And and short, but but quite dense. I mean, it's you know it's folded in it, folded in amongst itself, um, <laughs> almost like a TARDIS. So, you know, you, there's there's really a lot of depth in it, and and I guess that reflects the amount of of time and the amount of complexity through it. Not that it's hard, because it's quite easy to understand the stories. I think there's no there's no complexity in terms of being able to visualize where we are and what's going on. But there's a lot. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you. <laughs> and I'm glad. There are tunnels. <laughs> so I can understand that. But uh, I suppose now that it's, it is actually complete and, and out, it, it, like all art, of course, it's becoming something else. It's, it's, not, it's no longer internal to you. And so yeah. I suppose that, that same sense of, you know, this is no longer something that, that is within your own memory or your own dreams or your own yeah. past, but it has its own concrete and, and quite, um, you know, quite external existence. Yes, yeah. And I suppose that was probably also what I was <laughs> I was uh weeping over. But it's yes. but it is <laughs> but it is good. I, I um 
it is good finally. I'm sort of starting to feel free of it and starting to write other things and so on. So that's um, <laughs> personally nice for me. Yes, yeah. and, and other people will visit the art, of course, and spray it with their own crystals. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, I hope so. Yes. So um, we're, we're getting close to the end of our time. Uh, 30 minutes is never enough. But um, I have to ask you about Titan um, because, of course, it's the most likely home of life in our solar system other than Earth, mm-hmm. or certainly it's um, the most promising. But wh- why did you pick Titan? What, what is it about Titan that, that made you pick it for your settlement? Well, it was partly that it was the most plausible place um, for life. Um, so I should say that the, the section, uh, the science fiction section, which imagines a future in which there's a collector travelling between space settlements that have been abandoned, is um, fundamentally implausible, and that's part of the kitsch element that I was trying to build in. But I was also, um, but I, but at first of all, I chose it um, for that plausibility, but also, of course, because of the sort of mythic element um, of of Titan and of um, parents eating children and and time, um, which which that calls in. So I was um, I was interested in romantic poetry, bizarrely enough, mixed in with the science fiction. Um, and so the title of the sequence makes reference to the Keats poem, The Fall of Hyperion, which is dealing with the um, battles between the gods, where the parents and the children are struggling for control. And um, and I was interested in that partly because of the way it seems to me space travel in fact closes us into rooms and, and screens close us into rooms where our possession of things is is really a projection of our own minds and our machines that we can send to planets and make live there and which connect to us really through our imagination or our dreams. And it seemed to me in a way I was interested in Keats's poetry and romantic poetry and that sort of interplay of creating very beautiful sort of closed-in worlds. And so I was interested, for instance, in how so many characters in Keats are at a window looking out and wondering, I suppose, about about possession again. So that, so that um, I chose it partly for its practicality and partly for its mythical elements and resonance. Mm. Mm. Yes, of course, of course. Um, and I guess the title comes from the myth, so you know there's, also, yes. there's a lot of resonance yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. we we now almost entirely out of time. Um, but I'm before sorry. we finish, just tell me what you're, you're working on now. What's what's on the burner? Uh, I'm actually working on a novel I've been working on for a, a long time, um, which is with Scribe, which is supposedly coming out next year. So I'm working on that, and mm-hmm. it's again about um, mothers and daughters. And I'm working on poems, um, and I'm actually trying to get outside worlds into the poems. I'm going out into, I want to work a, a series out of a very scrappy bit of land that's near me, that's full of, um, a, it's a sort of council dumping ground. So I, I suppose I want to have some wildness in the poems in the next ones. Mm, wonderful. Well, we'll, um, we'll have to get you back on to talk about those when they come out or the novel. Oh, thanks so much for talking and for taking an interest in the book. Yes, well, th- thank you so much for joining us today. And listeners, don't forget to tune in next month when we interview Charlie Lovett, author of The Bookman's Tale. Okay, bye for now. <laughs>